This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing. Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Katie Balls. We're bringing you this podcast from the midst of the Brexit omni shambles and we'll be delivering a special Brexit edition shortly. But before that, something just as monumental, perhaps more, is happening on the other side of the world. China is developing a social credit system to rate its own citizens and their social behaviour. So, just how dangerous is this idea? That was the announcement that technology journalist James O'Malley heard when he travelled on a high-speed train from Beijing to Shanghai earlier this year. It is just a tip of a social credit iceberg, James writes in this week's cover piece. The Chinese government is working to create a system of scoring its citizens on their behaviours. James joins me now together with Cindy Yu, the Spectator's broadcast editor and China commentator. So James, firstly, can you just explain what the social credit system is? So social credit at the moment is more of an idea. It's basically the idea that China has all of these different government departments and um, local authorities, and they've all got a problem that we have in the West, which is they need to share data and they need to join up their various systems. You know, we're, we're doing that in Britain and everywhere else in the world is as, as the world gets more connected. But what China are thinking of doing is they've got a series of... Um, blacklists and basically uh, (laughs) people who are being punished in various ways and they want to make this data accessible to other government agencies. So they came up with this concept called social credit, it's been pushed by the government in 2014 and basically the idea is that eventually the system doesn't exist in its sort of full dystopian sense yet, that you'll be able to, or if you you fall afoul of the government in one area of life, it may come back to haunt you in another. So for example if you're on the government's Supreme People's Court's debtors blacklist of people who haven't paid a fine that the court has imposed on them. Um, you could, you know, be trying to buy your train tickets on, on, on an app or something like that, and it will just deny you the ability to buy a train ticket or get on a train or get on a plane. Or there's various other different types of punishment. As, as of yet, there's not one system, so there's no sort of one way of describing it. There's loads of there's there's around forty different regional trials um, around the country, all of which have different rules and different uh, punishments. So I think in um, in Shenzhen, in the south of the country, they're punishing jaywalkers, so people who cross the roads when the, the lights are on red or it's, it's not the green man or whatever. People there are being picked up by security cameras, which are using facial recognition software to mark it against their social credits. If, if you do it too much, you might be displayed um, on an electronic screen in the, in, in the, in the street to sort of pu- to publicly shame you and that sort of thing. But there's all sorts of trials elsewhere. Like another one is, um, I mentioned it in the piece. I think it's, um, I can't, I think it's Jinan. I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, but they're, they're, they're apparently giving an actual point score to um, pets. So if your if your dog is misbehaving, if it's barking too much or causing too much trouble, it's like points on their driving license, I guess. You know, <laughs> you could eventually end up with your dog being taken away and stuff like that. It's basically a, a, a unified system of punishments and and. and there's a sort of uh, my worry is there's a huge sort of aspect of control which is unlike you know which is on a scale that we can't even dream of in the west cindy this sounds a little bit like a black mirror episode there was one i remember where a girl was scored on her 
interactions at work to the point that I think she at one point she couldn't get a car out and yeah, a or, or house. Yeah, exactly. And had you know eyeliner eyeliner streaming down her face. This does sound quite like a horrendous use of big data mixed with state control. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I do, I do absolutely agree with that. And I think one of the things that James didn't touch on is how much data features in this. So one of the trials that's going ahead at the moment is by a private company, which is like the Amazon equivalent. And what they do is look at what you buy online using their systems and then score you. I mean, that's a, I, I think, personally, I'm freaked out by that. But the difference between that and Black Mirror is that that was a peer review system. You know, if you didn't hold the door open for someone in that Charlie Booker episode, then you get rated lower. And then that impacts your social standing, that impacts how you get financial services and that things like that. But this is not that. In China, what they're proposing is that big companies and ultimately the government have a say on people's behaviour. So it's less fast moving than that. You're not going to have your score immediately fall down because you were rude to someone on the bus. But it's not much less sinister, <laughs> I have to say. But I guess one of the arguments, if you're going to try and find an argument for this, is that it is a way of trying to encourage, well, encourage is the wrong word, it's a way of trying to force good behaviour in society. Do, do you think there's a merit in, in that argument for it? Yeah, I absolutely do. And if you speak to people in China who are being rated, you know, either, I mean, first of all, they don't know they're being rated, but the people who do know, they think it's a good idea. You know, I think this goes down to the ultimate cultural difference we have between Chinese people and us in the West, which is that the Chinese are happy to have stability over freedom. You know, they're happy to have security over liberty. And, you know, you go, <laughs> you're laughing at me now. Oh, no, but no I, was just, I was just thinking of our current Brexit situation, but that's our second right. item. And, so. and, <laughs> and if you look at the summer, you know, the knife crime in London, I've had people who live in London tell me, if there was a way of using big data, of using cameras to then have better security on our streets, then they would take that. And, you know, James mentions this dog um, situation. If your dog is out there biting people, then I think it's a fair punishment for your dog to be taken away from you. Uh, and I think in China, there's a cultural recognition of that, where because liberalism and individualism is much less of ideas over there, Confucianism, stability, all that sort of thing, you know, that governs and feeds into it. So the people aren't really feeling oppressed about it. James, can you see any merit to the system? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the origins of the system, there is a sort of a logic to it, which is aside from the sort of more dystopian aspects. So, like, the example with um, the the Amazon-like company, that's called Alibaba. This is one of China's uh, largest tech companies. The whole premise of that was basically as a sort of a proxy for a credit check because um, in China, certainly until recently, only 25% of people had traditional bank accounts and the whole banking sector was oriented towards uh, you know, helping the state-owned firms rather than individuals. And so if you're going to start lending people money and you know keep the Chinese economy growing they need a proc they need a way to figure out who they who they should lend to and so but the idea was uh, with Alibaba and their system uh, which is called Sesame Credit for giving people scores was literally well if we can't look at someone's financial history what else can we look at so they, they were looking at what people have bought on on Alibaba's various uh, retail websites and also who they're friends with and if they've got verified friends on the system so it's a bit like uh, it's like you know if you've got so many friends with whatever the Chinese equivalent of a blue check mark is that shows that you're probably a legit person versus someone uh, without those sorts of connections, the same way that we might, might sniff out a, a bot on Twitter or something like that. So I can completely see why that can work. And certainly, if you look at how China's challenge is sort of building a, 
trustworthy society because it doesn't have you know a century of <laughs> institution building to sort of go on. There, there is there is definitely a logic there. But what 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 concerns me is the sort of <laughs> more controlling aspect of it because I can't remember the exact form of words, but I quoted in a piece. I think uh, there's a couple of academics who wrote about the system. Basically, they make the point that with social credit, with it all joining up these various systems in a, in a very systematized way or a theory, in a hypothetically systematized way, depending on how they build the final system. It's basically aligning your every individual incentive you have to behave with that of the state, <laughs> which, which is terrifying. But I mean, I mean, James, it works. Mm. You, one of the things that you mentioned in your piece was this student who got into Beijing University, the Oxford Cambridge equivalent, mm. and he wasn't allowed to go, even though he had an offer, because his dad was on a government blacklist because he hadn't paid 200,000 yuan in debt. And that's £20,000 for the last three years. He just hadn't paid. He was put on a blacklist. He was given repeated warnings. They didn't find a way of dealing with him and he never paid mm. until his son was rejected from this top grade university because his dad hadn't paid. Immediately, his dad paid. You know, it it works whether mm. or not you... I mean, and there are societal ills, I think. And I think China is a different beast to the, to the UK here. Just as you say, institutions are not matured. Mm. The people are still living in a sort of traumatic experience of the last hundred years of communism, of war. And so, you know, there are a lot of societal problems that need to be solved. And that that's what, you know, Chinese people would say when you ask them, but you're being controlled. Mm. No, I, I do guess when you say that lots of people in China are quite happy with this rating system, I suspect that the people at the bottom of the rating system and not the ones who, who are loving it so to speak and in fact probably feel even more disenfranchised from society and in a way might actually lose an incentive to, to try if you're that far behind if you get to the point where you feel you can't access things so is there not a risk that the system actually divides society rather than brings it together yeah absolutely and I think if you are denying people so I think there was one trial in 2010 that social services were denied to people who had low ratings. I don't think that's going one step too far. And that actually, that trial was pulled because the people and the local media started mocking it. You know, they were saying, what, what is going on here? And so that one was pulled. And I think, yeah, I think there is such a thing as going too far. But I think at the moment, the system is not in place. And we don't know what it's going to look like. In they, The government says that they want it to be in place by 2020. But if you look at it, it's actually very, very immature at the moment. There's not really much going on. And so we just simply don't know which criteria the government is going to take ahead with it from these trials that they're doing. Are they going to go for the more intrusive ones or are they going to go for the ones that stick very closely to the word of the law? We just don't know. James, finally, mm. can you can you see a system like this, even just, you know, a very diluted version taking form in the UK <laughs> or, you know, in Western democracy? Well, arguably, we already have we have uh, similar sorts of things. We have so Uber, don't we? Exactly. When you get on your Uber, you, you score the driver. The driver 4. scores 5. you. <laughs> 4.62. <laughs> um, you know, everything, we every, every Airbnb, Yelp, all of these different services, there's all a scoring system. There's no sort of centralised database. I think the... the the thing we need to be cautious of, and the reason I'm constantly paranoid about this, so I think there's a slightly paranoid tone to my piece, is because of the um, of, it's, it's the phrase that was coined by Edward Snowden, actually called he, he came up with the phrase turnkey tyranny, and the idea is that you have you you know you create all these uh, technological apparatus for uh, surveilling and c- controlling people, which may seem uh, like a pretty good idea in the abstract. So social credit, like you say, a lot of people like it because it does do a lot of what, you know social management in terms of you know making sure people 
you know, put the right recycling in the right bins and that sort of thing. There is that sort of level to it in the same way that, you know, America's mass surveillance apparatus seems like in the abstract or maybe quite good for stopping terrorists. The problem is with any system like this, once you've built the system, it can be abused. And the point I make in the piece is you might trust the people in charge now. I mean, you might think, oh, yeah, well, I trust the Chinese government. I, I think that'd be a strange thing to do. You know, in the British context or American context, I trust the government. But then are you going to trust the people who come next? Would you, I mean, would you have trusted Donald Trump with that? <laughs> would you put those tools if you knew Donald Trump was coming next? If we had a similar tool, <laughs> if we wanted to build a social credit system in Britain, I mean, I'm pretty sure spectator readers would be pretty horrified to think of Jeremy Corbyn in charge of that system. <laughs> so um, it's all about thinking about, you know, how, how these systems can be abused as well as how they're used now. And then, Cindy, just finally, you touched on knife crime in London and how lots of people feel very, you know, very concerned about it, understandably. And um, there was a recent YouGov poll that showed that lots of Brit- well, most Britons support compulsory ID cards and fingerprint databases to tackle crime. Do you think, can you see a way where perhaps we could take a little bit of inspiration from this type of system in the UK? Yes, I think we can. Uh, and I think I think a lot of people in the UK, maybe more than you, you and I think, are preferring security to liberty. I mean, if you look at prevent, it obviously is met into a lot of trouble. But what it ultimately does is saying, you know, we've got to be a bit more careful about what we're saying. We've got to be a bit more careful about how we're treating our freedom. Because ultimately, lives are at stake for a lot of instances. And James, I just want to touch on something that you mentioned just now about how we in the West use data. I mean, as you know, as a technology journalist, big data is all around us in the West as well. I mean, all the, all the companies that you use, Uber, Amazon, Apple, Google, they all know down to a very, very minute detail about our lives. And, and that's why the entire Cambridge Analytica scandal happened. You know, people were surprised at how much data companies knew about us. But, you know, if you read the small print, you shouldn't be. And I think there is a potential double standard when we when it comes to looking at China. When China does something to do with data, to do with surveillance, everyone immediately thinks of 1984. But we in the West, we also use data intrusively. I mean, we collect this data, as I've just said. But also, if you look at some examples of how we use that data in the West, you'd be shocked. I mean, in Sweden, you can only buy goods at the shop if you use your personal ID number. There are companies who are currently in conversation with microchip companies, you know, companies in the city, legal and financial firms, who are talking about microchipping their employees so that they don't have to use key cards and so that their sensitive data can be stored. But I don't want to be microchipped and China is not even suggesting microchipping people. So I think the fact that we haven't heard about these sort of intrusive measures, I think it's quite interesting. And I don't think, I think, Katie, actually, we are closer to the China model of surveillance than a lot of people would think. Thanks, James. Thanks, Cindy. Looking for a new podcast to add to the mix? Then why not join me, Katie Balls, for Women with Balls, the Spectator's latest podcast series? In it, I'll be sitting down with the trailblazers of today to talk about their career goals and what makes them tick. So far, we've had Emma Barnett, and that's now available. Later this month, I'll be speaking to Liz Truss, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, as well as a host of other names. I do hope you'll join me. And you can find us on Spectator Radio. 
Now, one group of Brits who are not bored of liberty by any means are the Brexiteers. This week, the big news is the Brexiteer has been brought before Cabinet. The fragile Cabinet unity has been broken with the resignation of Dominic Raab. And as we record, Jacob Rees-Mogg has delivered his letter to Graham Brady, though he insists he is not leading a coup despite his press conference. So what will happen next and how can Theresa May get her deal passed through Parliament? I'm joined by James Forsyth, Sienna Rogers, editor of Labourlist and Tim Montgomery. So, James, starting with you, because you have your column in, in this week's Spectator, where are we at in terms of this deal? Is it optimistic to even consider how the deal is going to get through Parliament? I, I think the deal will get to Parliament because I, I think Theresa May will like, even if, first, I don't think it's certain that there is a vote of confidence. I think it is quite telling that there are quite a few members of ERG who are saying, don't actually put your letters in. But even if there is a vote of confidence, I suspect she will survive that. And I think well, one of the things we can say for certain about Theresa May is she's not the resigning type. So even if 90 people, were, 90 Tory MPs were to vote against her, I don't think she's going to throw her hands up and walk away. So I think the deal will come to Parliament. But then I think it gets very difficult to see how it passes, certainly the first time round. You know, if you went, OK, let's make some very... Cons- you know, I think the other thing these resignations show is that the optimistic assumption was you could get this ERG rebellion down to 20 or so. I think the, re- the resignations mean it's going to be larger than 20. But even let, let's just say it's a, only 20 vote against it. Then let's say there are only six Tory MPs who rebel from the kind of pro-second referendum wing of the party. Again, that's quite a conservative, small-c conservative assumption. And then let's be a bit more optimistic and say you get 25 Labour MPs to vote for it. Even and the, But the DUP, as they've made clear, oppose the deal. Even with those numbers, which are all quite positive for the government, it still loses. And I mean, that is the problem, which is it is now very, very hard to see how this passes without either kind of wholesale Labour abstentions or a really massive Labour rebellion in favour of it, of which there is no sign of that coming so far. Now, Tim, you're in a minority amongst Brexiteers because yesterday you came out on social media and said that actually it might not be great, but... If you were an MP, you would probably vote for Theresa May's deal. Do you still stand by that? And do you also think that Tory MPs should do that? I absolutely stand by the position I took. I I find myself in sort of quite an unusual position, really, for myself, because I've probably been one of the most staunch critics of Theresa May over the last 18 months or so. And straight after the election, when she messed that up, lost the Tory majority, I really urged my fellow Conservatives not least the Eurosceptics, to ditch her then because I thought her failure to command uh, confidence of her cabinet during that general election campaign to lose the majority was one of a number of signs that she was not best placed to lead our Brexit negotiations. Things like the failure of the dementia tax, I think, betrayed a lack of mastery of detail. I think we saw national insurance tax U-turns, many things I I could list. And I've consistently argued for her to be removed because I didn't think she would bring a good Brexit deal back to Parliament, to to the country. But I think the last best chance for her to be removed really was after the Chequers summit when the shape of the deal became clear. I think now for cabinet ministers, MPs to object when we're so much sort of 89th minutes of of the game, when I don't think Brussels will really countenance much of a renegotiation, to really be trying to reopen everything now just seems to me to be too late. So I'm not satisfied with the deal. It's not what I think it could have been. 
but it's okay. There's lots of good aspects of it, control of borders, control of fisheries, uh, an escape route from the customs union. And I think the alternative is chaos, and that's why I vote for it. Now, Sienna, on the Labour side of things, last one of the things that actually probably encouraged the Brexit backlash we're getting at the moment to May's deal was the fact that the government have made efforts to reach out to people in Labour, even Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour whips to talk about this deal. And I think that gave the impression to some Brexiteers that this wasn't really a Tory deal. Do you think that Number 10 are being naive in thinking that Labour votes are going to help see them over the line on this? Absolutely. I mean, I was very, very surprised earlier this week when I found out that Lisa Nandy, for instance, who literally said she would consider backing the deal, judging it on its merits, she said that Number 10 hadn't approached her at all, which I thought was incredibly naive of them. And instead, they had a meeting with Jeremy Corbyn, who has been incredibly clear that he's going to whip against the deal. I mean, that wasn't in question. And yet... So this very small group of Labour MPs, these are mostly Remainers who represent Leave seats, those are the MPs that she should be targeting. But even that group now looks like they won't be voting for the deal. And as more and more Tory MPs say that they won't be supporting it and kind of the awful display in the, the Commons, very embarrassing for Theresa May today, showed just how weak that support is in the Tory party, fewer and fewer Labour MPs in that group are also going to be supporting it. Now, one of the theories during the rounds when people tried to work out how this deal could possibly get through is the idea that it might get voted down the first try and then actually perhaps particularly Labour MPs would start to think, no, if we really do vote it down a second time if it comes back to the House, we are heading to a no-deal Brexit. And at that point, they might vote for it. Because after all, what Theresa May is proposing is quite similar to the Labour position on Brexit. We're talking about a customs union. And it might not be permanent exactly, but the reason the Tories don't like it is that they think it's permanent. So it does beg the question, why wouldn't Labour MPs support it? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And it has been quite tricky for the Labour front bench to explain why they're not backing the deal, when it does seem at first glance quite similar to what Theresa May is, is proposing. So obviously, their kind of first complaint is the customs union is, yeah, exactly, um, not permanent. But that's about the future relationship with the EU anyway, rather than the withdrawal agreement. So it seems a bit silly. So is this party politics, do you think, the reason that actually Labour MPs, perhaps people like Caroline Flint, who might vote for it, but mm. the bulk of Labour MPs, Do you think the reason they won't vote for this is down to party politics rather than the actual what's in the deal? I mean, I think it's both. Obviously, most of Labour MPs, you know, their heart is in Remain, whatever seat they represent. But always the political calculation hasn't changed. I mean, to my view, Labour was always going to vote, kind of whip MPs against the deal because that was just, that was never going to happen. It can't can't abstain, had to take a position and it wasn't going to prop up a Tory government. And James, do you think once the dust has time to settle, do, do you think some MPs are going to, who are calling for a second referendum, both on the Tory side and the Labour side, might begin to see this deal as the best way forward? Because that's number 10's hope, isn't it? I think there is a problem, which is this, which is the more Brexiteers say that this isn't Brexit or this is worse than staying in the EU, the more people feel that they have cover to call for a second referendum without looking like they're disrespecting the result of the first referendum. You know, the whole Joe Johnson letter calling for a second referendum is couched as in, you know, my brother who led the Leave campaign says this isn't really proper Brexit, so that's why we should go back to the people. But that is the, that is the problem for Number 10. Two things puzzle me at the moment. One is Number 10 
I think are right that in time, however infuriating it is that Theresa May has signed this deal, that her argument that it's this deal, no deal, or a risk of no Brexit is kind of 90% correct. But then the other thing that puzzles me is, and I think this is where Theresa May is boxed in by her previous rhetoric, is you could sell this deal in a different way. You could say, I am respecting the referendum result, but the referendum result was 52-48. You could then say that one of the main things that drove people to vote for Leave was a desire for control over immigration. I am delivering that control, and I am massively reducing the scale of UK payments to Brussels, and that is that will help enable more money to be spent on public services, as the Leave campaign promised. On the other hand, the 48% of people who voted to remain most of them weren't doing that because they wake up to the Ode to Joy every morning and their heart rises when they see the European flag. It's because they were worried about the economic dislocation that would be caused by leaving. And so I am, in choosing this form of Brexit, basically keeping us in the EU's economic structures. And so I am trying to respect both the 52% and the 48%. And then she should acknowledge the trade-off of being a rule taker. If I were her, I would chuck in that, you know, look, this country can suck it and see. If in 10 years' time we think that this level of rule-taking is intolerable, that will be a choice for a future parliament and a future prime minister to make about whether we opt for a different relationship. Tim, do you think that is an argument that will have merit with your fellow Brexiteers? I think James makes some good points, and I think it will be influenced hugely. I think opinion amongst Brexiteers will be hugely influenced by... The market should see over the next few days. We've had a little bit of turbulence today with banks and property developers losing some value. I don't expect the public will be that worried about that. But I think if the pound starts dipping considerably and we begin to see at risk some of the gains in wage growth, for example, that we've seen from people recently, I don't think it will just be Brexit supporting Tory MPs then that might have second thoughts. A Labour Party that says that it's very worried about jobs and economic dislocation We'll also have to ask itself some searching questions. If the economy looks like, because of uncertainty in Parliament, of ping-pong between the Lords and Commons, all the various eventualities and turbulences we might be about to go through, I think the Labour Party will come under enormous pressure then to come to Theresa May's aid. And I think there's a big advantage for Labour in that. If... John McDonnell presents the Labour Party as the economically responsible people who will save the economy from jeopardy, contrasting him and his party with Tory wreckers in, in an inverted commas. That might give Labour the opportunity to establish economic credibility in a way no other event will do so. And that should put you know, the fear of God into lots of Tory Brexiteer uh, MPs. And Sienna, when it comes to Labour's plan for Brexit, which is basically when it comes to just try and bring about a general election, that is what, whenever you have a shadow cabinet member on the airways, they say mm. is what they want to do about Brexit. Do you think there's a genuine belief that they can bring about an early election? Because obviously we have the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, where about two thirds of MPs need to vote for it. And that means Tory MPs would have to vote for it too. So it does seem on the surface quite difficult to do. As the opposition, I think we have to say we want a general election. That's what the Labour Party's duty is to say. But I think that the leader's office and other MPs, are, when they're being frank, absolutely recognise that there's 
very slim chance of actually getting a general election. We know about the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. So it's a line that we have to chop out. But basically, it's a way of avoiding confronting the question of whether we're going to back a, a people's vote. Because that's kind of the question as well. Because I think I can I can absolutely see the situation of Labour claiming victory and then perhaps even voting for the second deal that the Prime Minister comes back with. But the point is, in in that time, if amendments are accepted before the second deal, then you know, which way is it going to whip on the people's vote? And that's the kind of question that they're trying to avoid by saying, yes, we're pushing for a general election. And on the subject of a second referendum, I thought we could finish by doing something quite cruel and getting you all to give your prediction of what you think is the most likely outcome. And we'll, we'll start with James, our political editor. What's the question? Well, the question is, what do you think is going to happen? Deal passes, no deal, second referendum, early election, no Brexit. You can add options. <laughs> I, I mean, look, anyone's a fool who makes predictions at this point. But I'll All make fools a, on this podcast. Uh, I'll make a fool of myself. At the moment, I think the most likely scenario is that the deal passes at the second time of asking. And there are great convulsions in our politics after that. And I think you could see breakaways from both main parties as a consequence of the deal passing. Tim? I think James makes a very good prediction. I think all of us are very cautious about making those sorts of predictions, but that does seem likeliest. And I think what he has predicted will probably follow a vote of confidence in Theresa May that will potentially enhance her position. I suspect she will win it. And I think that's quite an important thing now because... At the moment, she you know she looks like she was bleeding her support from her party in the House of Commons earlier today. And I think Brussels will wonder, is it worth continuing to talk to her, to negotiate with her, to dot I's and cross T's? And I think if she wins a, a vote of confidence amongst her MPs now, it's probably an essential step towards her rescuing the deal and doing as James predicts. Do you think Brexit could divide the Conservative Party in two? Very possibly. But I think the Brexiteers need to be very aware now that I fear that they may be the biggest risk to Brexit than anyone else. I think by wanting something perfect at this 89th minute, I think they may risk Theresa May having to do a much grander deal with the likes of Ken Clark, with Remainers on the Labour benches, with the SNP, that will significantly soften the agreement or possibly end up with a second referendum. But I think the second referendum is still quite unlikely. A softening of the agreement rather than a hardening of the agreement is the risk if they continue on this path. And Sienna, finally, what do you see in your crystal ball? I think a second referendum, you know, it looks more likely than ever, but the leadership is still actually very reluctant to back that. Just instinctively, they don't want to back a people's vote, which obviously many of the MPs do, but the leadership just doesn't. So I think passing at the second deal looks like the most likely scenario at the moment. And that means because Theresa May is, looks like she's going to pass that vote of no confidence, then she can't be challenged for another year, which means that obviously the Tories will not, you know, let a general election happen for another year. So I think that's what's going to happen. Okay, so we we can now all hold you to it's account. It's a moment of Brexit unanimity. <laughs> Thanks, James, Sienna and Tim. And that's all for this week.
If you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe, rate and review on the iTunes store. We would love to hear from you. And if you'd like to hear more Brexit coverage as it comes, you can find it with Coffee House Shots, our daily politics podcast, sometimes more than once a day, depending on what Theresa May gives us. So pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in the podcast, as well as Joe Johnson's diary, remember when he resigned, and more. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing.